God, we're so thankful for Scott and Jen, and we're so grateful for their just long journey of yearning for a child and how little Christian is here. God, we pray for a little Christian. We pray that, um, that he would begin to know a God who loves him more than he will ever know who showed that love, not by talking about it, but by demonstrating it and giving his life for Christian. And we pray that you would um, surround this young man. We thank you for his family. And we pray and we dedicate ourselves to Christian, that we would be the kind of community that would point through our love, through our forgiveness, through our encouragement, through our prayer, we'll point Christian to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Give these guys a hand this morning. This is so fantastic. You guys can go ahead and be seated. These are for you guys. Yeah. So that's like one of the coolest parts of our job right there. Um, and one last quick thing is we're doing a little bit of fun family stuff today. I wanted to invite Gene Wysocki up. Gene has been part of our leadership team for four years. And um, the way it works is we build in some breaks for people <laughs> serving, especially in leadership. Um, and I wasn't gonna make you say anything. <laughs> but I, I so appreciate Gene's perspective. Um, sometimes in the life of a church, and maybe you've experienced this, there's this idea of behind everything, there's something else going on. You know, like um, like maybe you don't trust what's happening behind the scenes or you're nervous that um, it's going to burn you out because of all these weird things that are happening. And Gene jumped on our leadership team. Gene has served in other churches before. And she shared with us the other night just what a joy it's been a part of serving this church. Um, I don't know if I can recreate what you said, but I, I it was say, do you want me to say what I really I said? would I would love for you to say it. I now know how to talk to the community that still wanted to go. If you know, you know. 
that's a joke we have as a leadership team. So especially when Barrett was coming on, um, that what you see really is what you get, hopefully, around here. And the, and the cool thing is, is uh, there's been a lot of people that have served on leadership team that are no longer serving on leadership team, but they're still here, um, which is really, really great. So, Gene, we love you, and we're going to miss you and her wisdom. And so we have a little gift for you, Gene. Oh, yay. So you love gifts? This Thank is you. for you. I'm going to pray for Jean real quick. Yeah. God, thank you so much for Jean and her heart and her love. Um, it just oozes out in our lives, um, the way she pursues people. And God, I know her journey hasn't been easy. And you have walked with her the whole way. So God, we pray in this next season of, of other commitments for her, that you would raise up some places, some new places for her to lean into, and new ways for her to encourage us as a church, and uh, just give her a season of rest. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. All right. Thank you, Gene. We got things to get to. Mark chapter one. And an offering. We got to take our offering. We're just... We're just going to take our offering right now. So who else is with you? Barrett. Okay, cool. So if you're new, Happy New Year. Um, we take an offering every Sunday. You don't have to be involved, but if you'd like to be, please be involved. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, there are times in our lives, all of our lives, where you received news about something, whether it was the best news you've ever heard or tragic news. And you remember exactly where you were when you heard that news, right? I mean, you just think back, whether it was an announcement of a marriage or um, a tragedy or whatever. You remember where you were when you got that phone call, when you opened that letter, if you do that anymore, or whatever it was when you heard that news. Recently, um, over the last few years, I have been really interested in historical events that have happened in my lifetime. Meaning, when I was a kid, there were things that happened, you know, on the news or in the kind of the, the world that I was growing up in that I've gone back to and learned about more. For instance, the Unabomber. Remember the Unabomber? Anybody? Okay. As a kid, I was terrified that the Unabomber was going to get me, right? Um, and so, and, and, and over the years, you know, I've learned more about the Unabomber. That whole thing is so fascinating. It's a great show on Netflix. Hit it up. Um, and, and, and over and over again, there's more things. You know, the OJ deal. I remember where I was. I was trying to watch an NBA basketball game when OJ and Al Callings were cruising down the road in a white Bronco, right? Um, and so I was able to go back and, and learn some more about that. 
Um, recently, I picked up a book called Midnight in Chernobyl. And when I was a kid, 1986, I was 12 years old, there was a nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl, which is, it was about two hours north of Kiev. And I remember as a kid being terrified of a nuclear cloud that was going to go around the earth and get me in Northern California. And it was a big deal. I mean, it's a fascinating book, and there's more and more that's come out about Chernobyl. But what's interesting is that it was something that affected me. It was news that had an impact on me and what I did and thought and said um, after that. And as I'm reading the introduction to Mark, and it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I know for me personally that that line doesn't mean as much as it could have meant to the people that heard it first. That opening line has a lot to say about the world in which Mark was writing this letter. Now, when I opened that book, Midnight in Chernobyl, before I even got to the first line of the book, there's a copyright page, there's a foreword, there's a dedication, there's a table of contents, and then there's a series of pictures of a nuclear meltdown. And then you get to the actual story about Chernobyl. In Mark, this letter, this book, this gospel, paper was very scarce, it was rare. Mark is the shortest of all the gospel writing, shortest account of Jesus, and he wastes no time. There's no title page, there's no letter, there's no little, well, this is about the author. <laughs> there's nothing in there except for the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark has to make every sentence count. And he starts with this line, and this line in Greek writing is called the incipit. And this incipit is basically, it's like a thesis statement. If you're familiar with writing five-point or three-point essays, the thesis statement basically of Mark, the incipit, is basically a summary of what he's going to say over the next 16 chapters. This is it, the beginning of the good news. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so if you can wrap your head around that first line, that opening line, you're actually going to get all of Mark. It's going to make sense. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the opening line really briefly, and then we're going to talk about what the implications are for us, okay? So here's how this goes. The first thing is, in the beginning, the good news. Now, the good news, it, that interesting, that word is... Um, well, let me ask you this. What do you think the good news is? I'm going to throw it out there. What do you think Mark's talking about? What do you think the good news is? What was that? Salvation. Salvation? There's fulfill fulfillment of the Old Testament. By the way, there's no totally wrong answer here. Well, I, I guess there is, but just throw it out there. So salvation, fulfillment of the Old Testament. Anybody else? 
God with us. King coming. Good. It's good. I mean, that's, that's really the, all of that kind of wrapped into this. The Greek word good news is the word euangelion. Can you say euangelion? Euangelion. Nice word. Euangelion. And that's where we get the word evangelistic. But in the ancient word world, uh, it's not a religious word at all. It's a political word. So the word euangelion is actually meant to be um, an announcement that a herald or a preacher, that's what a herald was, would come to a city and announce one of two things. One, they would announce a new Caesar. Or two, they would announce that, that some strategic victory was won somewhere in or outside of the Roman Empire. And that was a euangelion. So here is a version of a euangelion. It was a Roman inscription. Augustus was sent as savior. The birthday of the son of, son of the God, Caesar, was the beginning of his good news. Now, it's a Roman inscription. It's kind of truncated a bit. But the idea here was that Caesar was good news because Caesar was the son of God. Caesar was divine. And so that was the idea of Mark's gospel here. Mark actually does something pretty scandalous, pretty treasonous. Is he actually says, this is the good news, this is the announcement, this is the euangelion of a different king. Of a king that is better than Caesar. And so over the years, you and I, 2,000 plus years later, we are in our location, we are American Christians, and the gospel, we have kind of pushed into an easy packaged formula. We've Twitterized it, we've uh, lunchabled it into a, an easy little packaged formula. It goes something like this. Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And if you believe, you will be saved by grace, not by works and effort. And you will go to heaven when you die. Okay. Is that true or false? It's true. It's just missing some really, really big pieces. It's really missing some, some huge stuff. The gospel, the announcement, is so much more than that. So at the beginning, it says the title of this whole thing is Euangelion Kata Markon, the gospel of Mark. And this whole thing, from chapter 1 to chapter 16, it'll take you probably 40 to 60 minutes to read it. It'll take us about a year and a half to go through it. Now, just to give you a heads up, we're not going to go through it for the whole year and a half. We're going to do a chunk, do something else, do a chunk, do something else. Does that make sense? So we'll be hitting it for over a year and a half. Listen to what a couple scholars say 
about the Gospel of Mark. Gospel refers to the story about Jesus narrated in the text. It comprises Jesus' words, deeds, death, and resurrection as God's direct intervention into human history. It challenges an imperial cult propaganda that brings message brings messages of good tidings and a new age of peace through the Roman Empire. Challenges that. Here's another scholar. He's, uh, this, this, this gal says this. Mark titles his book The Gospel because he is gospeling in his book. What does that mean? It means that Mark is narrating the saving story of Jesus. So whenever you tell somebody... Whenever you tell someone anything about the story of Jesus, you are gospeling. You are announcing. You are heralding a different king. So, for instance, if you tell someone, we're going to get to this story in a few weeks, and in, in actually in early March. There's a story of Jesus healing a man with leprosy. Now, when you tell somebody this story, you can talk about how leprosy is this disease we don't deal with in America, really. And, and to touch, the thinking was to touch a leper, you would actually contract the leprosy. And it was thought that by being even near a leper, that you were actually not allowed to even worship and go to church and things like that. But Jesus walked up and touched this leper, signifying so much that Jesus was actually for people who are on the margins of society. And that's what Jesus is all about. And you tell somebody about that, you're gospeling. You're talking about the heart and character of God through Jesus. And so Mark is, um, is, is, is an amazing writer. He's to the point, and yet at the same time, there's so much happening in this book. So much about the life of Jesus. It's kind of like the end of the return of the Jedi. Star Wars fan. Episode 6, the end of The Return of the Jedi is three stories that kind of come together at the end. Um, and, and there's three stories happening. There's, there's Han, um, you know, and, and the Ewoks, which was really not everybody's favorite. Um, and then there's Lando, and there's that whole space battle thing. And then there's Luke, and he's like, do I kill my dad? Do I not kill my dad? And there's this three stories, right? Half, you guys, really? No? Okay. So just like Return of the Jedi, there's three stories happening in Mark. All at the same time. And here's the three stories. Eden, Israel, and Rome. Eden, Israel, and Rome. Really quickly, the storyline of Eden. Mark says, the beginning. And this is the interesting part that Mark really in one sentence does so much to set up what Jesus is all about. The beginning, he says, in the beginning, and this is nod to creation. There's this nod to Genesis in the beginning. Mark is saying, listen up. Here's a hint. The story of Jesus has to do with creation. It actually has to do with new creation. And, and if you fast forward just a bit, and we're going to get into it in a few weeks, but verse 10, it says, just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he had been baptized by John the Baptist, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And I don't know about you, but I've always thought, like, what's the deal with the dove? Like, why a dove? And, and is it because the spirit is, like, nice and fluffy and pure-looking? <laughs> I don't know. Like, what is the deal with the dove? And is that what Mark is saying? So let me just say this real quick. Mark is Jewish, and he is writing to a Roman audience in Greek. So scholars believe that Mark is writing this book in Rome to Jews who are following Jesus in Rome. And scholars also believe there was a Targum at the time. And what a Targum is, it's when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Aramaic that there was an interpretation and there was a Targum floating around at the time that Mark actually used um, when he translated this, when he talked about this. Um, so listen to this. This is Genesis 1-1 from a Targum. Throw this on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uninhabitable and like a wasteland. The Spirit of God flapped his wings over the waters like a dove. So what Mark is doing in so much, scholars believe that, that, that he's actually bringing this whole idea of creation into the announcement of Jesus. That Mark's gospel is laced with hints and allusions and echoes and actual quotes about creation. So this is a, a quote from N.T. Wright. He says, for Mark, the actual introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, new creation is at hand. What does that mean? By What does he mean by new creation? So you can break down the story of humanity in human history, I believe, into three blocks. Creation, decreation, and recreation. If you were to actually look at the scriptures and how they unfold, creation, decreation, recreation. And so let's just split this up. So creation, we all know creation, God created, called it good. Um, and early on, creation was like humming in, in sync with each other, and, and, and life was in sync. And, and we see tastes and echoes of that in our time, right? You see moments and tastes and echoes of creation like working, like new life and, and children being born and spring and freedom from addiction and slavery. And when things work right and people work together and this like simple, like even a simple, beautiful day and a good cup of like real, like real good coffee, right? Beautiful day and a really good coffee that was like, uh, like sourced, you know, right? And, and there's no like, it's not blood coffee, you know, right? Like real good coffee. You know what I'm talking about. I'm into coffee. And it's this idea that humanity was supposed to rule over the world in a way that would gather up all the raw potentiality and make something good. And then we experience decreation. And decreation is, you know, here's the thing, whether you're here and you're religious 
or not. Either way, decreation is very self-evident. We see it all over. Uh, the, the, the fact that something is wrong with the world, right? So anything from genocide to pollution to war, violence, anti-Semitism, to even the people that just wrap the trunks of their trees in their front yard at Christmas time. Something wrong with the world when you do that. Trunk wrappers. I don't know why that bothers me so much. Here's the deal. The problem is you and I, especially the trunk wrappers, but you and I. That's the problem. In the human condition, we're born bent away. We're born uh, just, uh, just feeding on something different. And then there's this idea of recreation. Mark is saying that in Jesus, okay, in Jesus, a new world is coming to birth. And I love the way there's a children's Bible, I've tried to put my hands on it, that says this in response to that. It says, in Jesus, God is making all the sad things come untrue. I love that. In Jesus, God is making all the sad things come untrue. Jesus is the beginning of the recreation of Eden. That's storyline number one. Storyline number two is the story of Israel. Listen to this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. See, the Messiah, in some of your Bibles, it actually says, because it's the Greek word, Christos, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay? So Messiah is a very Jewish title. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea of a coming king, and we read about this coming anointed one. Put the, uh, an anointed one that's going to put things back together to put the world to rights, to usher in an age of peace and beauty and healing. And one day this Messiah will rule and reign and things will be back together. And Jews were waiting on pins and needles for this coming. And you need to get this. Because you and I, we are individualistic Americans. And that's just the soup we're in. That's the air we breathe. We think of ourselves. We think of our, our choices and, and our actions as really about us or maybe a few other people involved. But this was a huge community thing. Jesus does not just drop out of nowhere into a vacuum. Jesus actually is the climax of the story of Israel. And that means something. That has huge weight to it. That's why after the Incipit, we're going to get into the first thing Mark does is he quotes two Jewish prophets. He quotes Isaiah and Malachi. And, and Mark, was, Mark is filled with stuff from the Old Testament. It's just, it's like the whole story, right? The whole story is from Moses to David, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the exile, all the way through the prophets, the story of Israel through the last prophet in the Old Testament. It's all been leading to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, meaning he is the apex, the fulfillment, the climax of the story of Israel. So that's storyline number two. Storyline number three is this. Rome. Mark is writing in Greek. He's Jewish. 
writing in Greek to the people of Rome. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah in that last line is the Son of God. Now, the Son of God, we think that's a religious phrase, but in Mark's day, it was a title for the Caesars. It was a title for Augustus, Nero, and all the Caesars to follow. It's an image of a, of a Roman coin we're going to throw up on the screen. And this is um, its pretty interesting. This is in Latin. Divius Filius, Latin for the son of God. Caesar was the son of God, and it was believed that Caesar was the mediator between earth and heaven. And so Mark's opening line is a dangerous euangelion. It's actually treasonous because... Is it any wonder, let me just ask these couple questions, is it any wonder that Jesus was executed by the Roman government for claiming to be the Son of God? And we hear as he stands before uh, Pilate, and Pilate says that uh, they claim that you are the Son of God. Is that true? Is it any wonder that almost all the apostles were executed? There's a, is a quote from a guy named Larry Hurtado. If you want to dive deep into Roman culture, Christianity was so different, he says, that critics of the time referred to it as a superstition, meaning a bogus or dangerous religion. Christianity, those who followed Jesus, were seen as dangerous to the Roman government. Millions. Not hundreds, not thousands, millions of followers of Jesus were murdered in the first few hundred years of the church. It's a dangerous announcement that Marx has made. The real true bridge between heaven and earth, he says, is not Caesar. It's this Messiah. It's the real true son of God. N.T. Wright says, Mark's gospel is an apology, which is a defense for a crucified Messiah and a polemic against the imperial power of Rome. It wasn't just the, hey, come believe Jesus, do the Roman thing. It was actually something that set the follower of Jesus against the imperial power of Rome based on allegiance. That's storyline number three. We fast forward here to the end of Mark chapter 16. The end of Mark. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James and, and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Pay attention to that word. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? 
but go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Notice the tone of the first Easter. Alarmed, scared, afraid, trembling, bewildered. Why are they scared? Why are they so freaked out? The short answer is they were expecting resurrection. They were totally expecting resurrection, but they believed in um, they believed in recreation. They believed that God would, would resurrect his people, but they believed that resurrection was for all people at the end of history. That's what Jews believed. They didn't believe it was for one man right in the middle of human history, and nobody was expecting this. This terrified them. This freaked them out. Resurrection means that Jesus dragged the future into the present and opened up a whole new world right in the middle of this one. So it's, what's interesting is in the other Gospels, you've got John's Gospel, Matthew, and Luke. In the other Gospels, the tomb area was called a garden. This idea of creation, right? John's gospel actually says when Mary sees Jesus in the garden, she thinks he's the gardener. These ideas of creation. Mark's saying, think Eden, that, re uh, that recreation is at hand. So what does this all mean for us? What does this have to do with you and I? Well, remember the context of Mark. Scholars believe that Mark was written between 65 A.D. and 75 A.D. Does anybody know what happened in 70 A.D.? The temple was destroyed, yes. Okay. So Mark is in Rome. He's writing the gospel. He's writing down the story of Jesus. And there is rumbling. Jesus actually predic predicted this this prophetic thing that's going to happen. He predicted the, the temple. And, and, and there's rumblings in there's Roman culture about the Jews and this uprising. And, and either whether it happened, he wrote this right before that or right after it. Can you, can you imagine the world that Mark's writing this into? Can you imagine the fear and the um, just the electricity of the moment in this time. It had to be nuts. Mark is telling the story of recreation and that resurrection means something. And, and it goes on, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and he, he goes on to say, and, he, and 1 Corinthians is written about this time too, and he says, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, you and I are crazy. You're, you're crazy because of what this is actually calling us to be. Is something so different. The gravity of Jesus' resurrection has so much implication for us. And, and this, I think, is the greatest way to start the year for you and I. Because I'm going to just throw this out at us, and it's going to be really hard.
What does this have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. Because if in Mark's beginning we learn that Jesus is ushering in a new creation and that this is the greatest news, what gospel are we preaching? If this is the greatest news to happen to humanity, what gospel am I preaching? I'm not talking about like right now. I'm talking when I get out of here and, you know, I'm hungry and I'm angry and <laughs> whatever. Or, or what, what gospel am I preaching on Tuesday? What gospel am I preaching this year with my life? Let me ask you, I'm, I'm just going to ask a few questions for you to let rattle around in your head and make you want to email me. <laughs> Are we preaching a gospel about good news for the poor? Like Jesus did? Or are we preaching a gospel of Costco? I'm just going to throw that out there. With our lives. Are we preaching a gospel, the good news of the American dream? Consumerism and excess? Or are we preaching Jesus' gospel? And this one's going to be fun. Being that it's 2020. 11 months of just agonizing political stuff. I'm going to ask you some really serious questions. This church is not political in the sense of Democrat-Republican. This church is political in the sense of who Jesus is and Jesus is Lord. Over and against anybody. There's a lot of talk about politics and how Christians respond to politics. And this isn't the last time we're going to talk about it. Get used to it. Are you preaching with your life and your money and your Facebook and your Twitter and your conversations, are you preaching a gospel of Trump? A gospel of Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren or anybody else in the next 11 months? Is that going to be your gospel? Or is it the gospel of Jesus? Jesus is Lord. Over and against any of this stuff. And here's the thing. We get swept into all of it. We get swept into the consumerism. We get, it's got this pull on us. My favorite word, inertia. It's got this inertia to it, consumerism, and our spending, and our political thoughts, and our anger, and our frustration. All this stuff, it just, it, and it all has fear underneath it. So here's three questions for us. Are we people of the future? Are we people of the resurrection? Are we people of recreation? And I want to throw this one up on the screen. Are we announcing with our lives and our words and our money and our time and our allegiances, are we announcing the good news that Jesus is Lord this year? with our lives. And like we talk to our children up here, like all of our lives, 
not just categories, not just bucket, not your Sunday morning, not your Thursday night small group. All of our lives are we announcing this gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Let me pray. God, this morning...